from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. The Koala Moon podcast has revolutionised over 20 million bedtimes with parents like you calling it life-changing and the perfect nighttime routine. With original kids' bedtime stories and cosy sleep meditations, every episode has been specially designed to make bedtimes a dream. Listen to Koala Moon on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ethan Nadelman, and this is Psychoactive, a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs— but any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drug. In this episode, we'll also be talking about sex and sexual assault. I have a feeling that today's podcast is going to be particularly interesting and maybe pushing boundaries and, and maybe pushing buttons. Uh, my guest today is Dan Savage. Uh, 30 years ago, Dan started writing a, a column on sex and relationships for the alternative newspaper in Seattle called The Stranger. And that thing over the last 30 years has become syndicated all around the United States. And then since then, he's also started his own podcast, which is called Savage Lovecast. So Dan, thanks so much for joining me. Uh, I, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to have this conversation too. 
Yeah. So listen, let me first ask you, I mean, I, I think you and I are going to land up agreeing on a lot of stuff. So I'm going to try to problematize some issues as well and see if we can <laughs> nudge out some disagreements here. But tell me, I mean, basically, what's your frame of mind when you're thinking about drugs and sex? If I just put those two words together. You know, I'm not opposed to mixing them. There's a lot of people out there, particularly with the conversation we've been having about consent and informed consent and meaningful consent who are arguing that any impairment at all uh, means the consent wasn't real, authentic, genuine, freely given. And I uh, disagree. You know, sex makes us all nervous. There's a reason why a lot of people need to have a little bit of social lubricant of whatever form before they head out in search of sex. Some people need to medicate a bit with uh, alcohol or other drugs to find the courage to ask for what they want. It's a slippery slope though, because you can wind up in a place where you're not thinking straight, you're not reading another person's cues correctly, uh, you're so nervous and, and repressed that you have to not just lubricate yourself a bit socially, but flood the zone to such an extent that you go a little crazy. Uh, or aren't advocating for yourself in the moment in an effective way, and you could end up being traumatized or harmed, or traumatized or harmed someone else. So it's a, it's a weird place. You know, there, there are these two pressures uh, in sex, uh, with, with mixing sex and drugs, sex and alcohol, where it can make sex and that kind of connection possible. It can help alleviate our anxiety around going for it or asking for it, but too much can magnify the harm potentially that non-consensual sex or just sex that leaves you feeling violated, even if you know the person who violated you was you when it's over. Mm -hmm. And so you have to approach it cautiously and carefully, which is not how everyone does it. Okay, so I told you I might dredge up some stuff from things you've written or said in the past, okay, so. <laughs> well, I gotta say something first. I've been writing for 30 years. Like sometimes you write something, you think some more, you write some more, you think differently, and then people will bring something up, especially in the internet age, because everything you've ever written is on websites that you know have ads for movies that came out this week. So everything you've ever written looks like you published it yesterday. Listen, man, I can relate. I started writing this stuff in 87, and I look at some of the framing, the language I used back in the 80s. Yeah. But let me tell you, let, let me see how you respond to the Dan Savage of 2003, okay? You All got right. uh, on your Savage Love, Love column, somebody wrote to you about a uh, female college sophomore's boyfriend friend. She was in a relationship, but then she found out that he had also been screwing some other women and using cocaine. And you write back to her, he goes, first of all, coke is not a date rape drug. Date rape drugs, as commonly understood, are substances that render a girl helpless, practically comatose, obliterate her will and any ability to resist. If anything, cocaine would have to be considered the opposite of a date rape drug. Being pressured into having sex that you regret the next morning does not mean that you were raped. Being seduced does not mean that you were raped, nor does consenting to sex when you were drunk or high. So what do you think? We just stand by those words or pull back from some of them in, in this new context? I would pull back from some of them in this new context, mm -hmm. yet I wouldn't pull back as far as others might. Certainly now there's this awareness, I have this awareness, I've thought through this, about coercion, but also about the way men are socialized and the way women are socialized, and that women will often go along with what a man seems to want in the moment for fear of violence, to, to de-escalate the situation. A lot of women will consent to sex, whether they're drunk or high or not, because they fear that the guy that they're with may do something worse 
then have sex with them that they don't want or aren't enjoying if they say no. And men, I think, have to be hyper-conscious of that. Going into any sexual interactions with women, thank God I'm gay sometimes. I think <laughs> Not that this can't play out in same-sex relationships as well. Men have to control for that and in, in some ways overcompensate for that. You may get the yes that you hope to get. You need to verify that that was an authentic yes and that that wasn't a yes because you scare me. And what you don't want to do is get into a situation where you get unenthusiastic consent or inauthentic consent mm -hmm. or panicked consent or consent that was granted reluctantly because the woman felt coerced by the circumstances into having sex. And, and I don't think most men want to have that kind of sex. I don't mm -hmm. think most men want to have sex where, you know, technically it, it seemed to be consensual, but the woman felt violated afterwards. Uh, most men aren't monsters. Other men who are monsters at least have some sort of self-preservation instinct these days around not wanting to get into a Me Too situation like that and will go to greater lengths. So I think that 2003 column was a little, which is almost 20 years old, mm -hmm. a little too glib uh, with those distinctions. I was being a little too technical right, right, uh, right. in a way that gave men advantage or license that men don't deserve and shouldn't take. So there's, you know, this phrase chemsex, right? Mm -hmm. and, you know, and I, I came across somebody, there's a fellow named David Stewart, who said he coined the term and it refers specifically to gay men in the use of particular drugs, crystal meth, GHB, GBL, cathinone, things like that. Um, and other people defined it more broadly. But here's the question I want to ask you, right? So, so when people are entering, especially younger people, entering a situation where drugs and sex, like we're going to talk a lot on this show about drug set and setting, right? The basic idea that how drugs impact you have a, as much to do with the set and the setting as they do with the drugs themselves. Mm -hmm. And obviously the same is going to be true with issues around sex and possibly issues around consent. So somebody's going to a party, a club, whatever. It's one where sexual contact is understood to be part of what's the scene. Somebody's taking drugs because they want to release some of those inhibitions. They want to explore some aspects of their sexuality or whatever in that context. And in that context, they are way out there and doing all sorts of shit that they may love in the moment but feel bad about the next day. And that's on them. Okay. And, and that's, I think, a real risk of a sexually repressive culture is that some people, the only way they can give themselves permission to do what they want to do is to put themselves in a situation where they don't feel they're in control. You know, they basically self-medicate the, the shame and inhibition away. And then when the drugs wear off, when the shame and inhibition come rolling back in like the tide, you can end up feeling awful about yourself, about what you did, about the people that you did those things with or did those things to you. Which is why I think, you know, I, I'm very opposed to crystal meth. Uh, I think it's a terrible drug. You know, I'm gay and I've certainly had my fun and my crazy experiences. I've never participated in chemsex sessions or chemsex parties. I would experience them as dehumanizing in a way that I don't think that I would have a good time. But I've had friends who enjoyed that scene. I've had friends who were destroyed by that scene. I've also had friends who were destroyed by just sex without chems. Uh, so everything is a mm -hmm. hammer, basically. You can build something or you can beat your brains out with it. Chem sex, I think it's a particularly dangerous. Yeah, yeah, I'll tell you, I mean, there was a time, must have been early 2000s, and methamphetamine was taken off in the kind of gay club scene in New York. 
And there was a sort of split, I think, in the gay community. I remember being invited to give a talk at Gay Men's Health Crisis, where they were fighting over the issue, could there be such a thing as safe sex with methamphetamine? Could there be such a thing as harm reduction with methamphetamine? Both of us know a fellow named, I think it was Peter Staley, who was like putting out, you know, ads on New York City corners condemning meth and, you know, really making a campaign. And it was weird. It was obviously trying to discourage young gay men from doing this stuff, but it was feeding into a stigmatization, demonization campaign as well. So if you had a friend of yours, a younger friend coming and saying, Dan, like, you know, I really want to try this. I have a few friends who've done it and hasn't been a problem so far. Yeah, no, it's weird. I remember Peter Staley did do that ad campaign about math. You know, Peter and I had kind of a run in about um, prep because I predicted and I think I've been vindicated by the reporting and the data. Well, just explain to our our listeners what PrEP is. Uh, Pre-exposure prophylaxis. It's a drug that gay men and other men who have sex with men can take so that uh, basically uh, prevents HIV infection. HIV-negative men on PrEP and HIV-positive men who have access to drugs and care who have undetectable viral loads are not capable of passing on HIV, which is why we've seen just a rapid plummeting in HIV infections. But PrEP doesn't protect you from the other sexually transmitted infections. And so, of course, it led to a huge spike in syphilis and gonorrhea and chlamydia among gay men who stopped using condoms because now they were on PrEP. Um, anyway, you know, back to Peter and meth and... There, in the harm reduction movement, which really started around HIV and condoms, that's when that idea kind of got injected uh, into the gay health discourse. There seemed to be a lot of permission seeking flying under the banner of harm reduction or being laundered through harm reduction because people would argue that, you know, gay men were shamed for being gay. Therefore, you shouldn't shame gay men for using meth and staying up for four days and having sex with you know, 80 people at a never ending party where nobody ever stepped out to have food or a glass of water and never slept. And you were participating in the shaming of other gay men. If you said that sounds like a bad idea, mm-hmm. that sounds like an unsustainable sexual lifestyle, if I could use that word, certainly an unsustainable sexual ecosystem and not an environment where people are going to be you know, exercising their best judgment. And you don't always want to exercise your best judgment when you're having sex. Sometimes you do want to take risks. We're wired for risk. Risk is sexually arousing. Risk is exciting. Remember like Clinton getting those blowjobs from Monica Mm -hmm. Lewinsky off the Oval Office and people are like, why would he do that? It's so dangerous. It's exactly why he did it because it was so dangerous. The truth is risk is arousing and we all want a certain amount of risk in our sex lives. It's why I'm always in the position of advising people who've been together 10, 20 years who say there's no passion, the spark is gone, sex isn't exciting, to engineer risk, to take risks together as a couple. Because at the beginning of the relationship, you're the adventure they're on, they're the adventure you're on, they're like taking a chance on you, they don't know if you're an ax murderer or Jeffrey Dahmer or not, and vice versa. And so getting naked with somebody for the first like couple of dozen times is scary in this reptile brain way that getting naked with somebody that you've been with for 10 years never can be. We'll be talking more after we hear this ad. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. 
he says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon, and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes, packed with original stories and sleep meditations, Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress, they gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Cowie, what do you say? It was. And that time when we did the science experiment and Billy made raisins dance. That is so cool, Billy. He did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me! <laughs> Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to get you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on Story Button, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. It is 2024, and we're going to get through this together, folks. My campaign promise to all of you, here on Next Question, it's going to be a good time the whole time, we hope. I have some big news to share with you on our season premiere featuring Kris Jenner, who's got some words of wisdom for me on being a good grandmother, or in her case, a good lovey. You know, you start thinking of what you want your grandmother name to be. Like, are they going to call me grandma like I called my grandmother? So I got to choose my name, which is now lovey. I'll also be joined by Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, to name a few. So come on in and take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. I loved it. Your energy and joy. I'm squeezing every minute I can for you out of this season of Next Question. Last question, I promise. You have to go. I have to go. <laughs> but it's been so fun. And I can't wait for you to hear it. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's funny, it's what you would say to a long-term couple, try out some danger and risk. I would probably say try out some drugs. Oh, the drugs are something I recommend to long-term couples frequently. And so which ones are you recommending? Uh... 
you know, I think ecstasy saved my marriage. Mm -hmm. Terry and I were at a real low point and we got a cabin on the Pacific coast and took a weekend away and did E on Saturday. And we're really able to, to reconnect in what wasn't the drug talking. The drug was allowing us to talk. Uh, in an authentic way. And, and I think ecstasy saved my marriage. I've recommended MDMA to couples. Well, Dan, let me, let me stop with the, you know, with the MDMA thing, because I say in my marriage, MDMA did not save our marriage, but I think it helped us come to a softer landing where we then became very good friends thereafter and continue to be so and co-raise our daughter and things like that. I, I could see MDMA doing that too. Yeah, but, but I mean, you can't take it every day. So obviously, one has to bring those lessons into your life going forward. How did you and Terry take that experience and bring it forward in a way that didn't just wear off after a few weeks or months. It just surfaced a lot of love that had been buried under a lot of resentment and scorekeeping. And our personal lives are very complicated. We're polyamorous and have other boyfriends. And that requires a lot of sort of tense negotiation and scheduling, <laughs> as all the poly people will tell you. And we had sort of lost sight of not just each other, but the fact that being with him allowed me to have my boyfriend too, and being with me allowed him to have his boyfriend too, and being with me meant he didn't have to choose, and being with him meant I didn't have to choose, and neither of us wanted to choose. And we were able to talk about that in a way that that became sort of a, a focal point of our affection and regard for each other, that this thing that we had been fighting about was actually a thing that had value and that was a demonstration of our love for each other, that we were in negotiation about these things, that we had managed for years mm -hmm. to find a way to f not finesse, but allow. You know, the conversation we had uh, on E really landed in a place where we said, we're gonna love and support and leave each other, or we're gonna love and support and let each other. And we weren't able to have that conversation in the way that we did before we took E and, you know, had this wave of, the surfacing of the love that was there. It wasn't like the E was creating feelings of love. It was unleashing them mm -hmm. and, and unburying them. And I, I really honestly, you know, we didn't do it in a controlled clinical setting. We didn't have a couples counselor at our elbows. We weren't in a therapist's office. We were on the ocean on a beach, just the two of us, um, with some MDMA that we acquired the traditional way. Mm -hmm. Or the... You know, I guess you could say getting it from a couples counselor was the traditional way before it was criminalized because uh, it had been used in couples counseling uh, up until the 70s. But we had to get it from, you know, friends who can access those things. And it really helped us. Did you continue to use it to reconnect or re reprocess these issues thereafter? Well, we haven't. And, you know, we had used E once when we first met each other 25 or yeah, 26, almost seven years ago, uh, recreationally. And we have it in the house and we've talked about it, but we haven't done it again. But we keep saying to each other, like, we're going to get away for a weekend and, and do E again. It almost feels like a tune-up. But this was probably two years ago, a year and a half ago. Oh, is that recently? Yeah. And, and I've always said to when drugs come up in my talks at colleges that I guess except for work, I don't have a very addictive personality. And whenever I've found a drug that I really enjoyed – my response isn't, oh, I'm going to do that every day. Mm -hmm. My response is, I'm going to put that on the shelf so that when I do want to do that again, it has as big an impact as it did today or last night. 
And so, you know, that E worked for us so well that weekend doesn't mean we've done E every weekend since to tolerate each other. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, w- it wouldn't work there. I mean, I, you know, look, from, I think about the role for me in my life. I mean, I'm sort of your basic, you know, heterosexual serial monogamist. And for me, MDMA has played a role beginning in my 30s until maybe 10 years ago when it stopped really working for me, really in processing issues in a relationship. You know, it was the way of kind of clearing out, talking, basically what you're talking about. It, and it wasn't obvious in every week thing. It was a kind of once a year sort of thing um, to really process those kinds of issues. And it, isn't it interesting how people will take E and then say very loving things and then someone will dismiss them and say it's just a drug talking? It's almost as if we're afraid of the enormity of the affection and and feelings of love that E can surface, mm-hmm. that our response to them, and not just individually, but I think culturally, because you see this in sort of writing about E or representations of taking E in films is this rush to dismiss whatever was said or done on E as as a lie. Well, you know, I think there has to be some element of consciousness around it, though, because people ask me about ecstasy, E, and I'll say, I say, look, it's a drug. It's not a sex drug. It's more a hug drug. Oh, God, yeah, no, it's not a sex drug. <laughs> it's more of an, no, it doesn't. It's, you know, you may get aroused, but it's not, you're not going to be orgasming in that way. And that it's also, I also say it's a drug that will make you feel warmly towards strangers, lovingly towards friends, and profoundly in love with your lover. But what I also know is that the times I did, I knew right from the beginning that it could wear off and that there could be a tendency, even among people who've done it and felt these incredible feelings of love, for those things to fade and say it's just the drugs. And so part of it, I remember the first time sort of sitting, looking at my, I was wife at the time, while we're on it, and just looking in the eye and saying, this is going to fade, let's think about how we come back, you know, during the week, in the months ahead, where we try to bring up this feeling again without the drug. Mm -hmm. Because we know that, you know, all drugs basically trigger alter states of consciousness, you know, that can be triggered without those drugs. The question is learning how to teach yourself to trigger those things. So, And I think it's easier to to trigger those things if you've experienced them Mm -hmm. as intensely as he can help you experience them. Like, like I love my husband. Uh, I certainly, when it's just, you know, he and I on the couch watching TV in a very similar physical position as we were on that deck and, you know, on the coast of Washington, like I'll, I'll feel that I love him. I don't feel this like, oh my God, I'm turning inside out. I love him. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that turning inside out feeling from two years ago helps me identify that feeling. Mm-hmm. Even when, you know, life and stress and family shit has buried it. I think right. it's more easily surfaced. That's the word I always come to. That Like E helped us surface a bunch of stuff uh-huh. that just the the accrual of you know, time and conflict. Life is a grind. And, and one of the traps that people who, who are in open relationships or polyamorous relationships can fall into is that your you know, spouse or your committed partner, your primary partner is the one you have to talk with about the rent and putting a new roof on the house and conflicts about kids and deal with a family crisis. And the boyfriend is who you turn to for fun. And you have Mm -hmm. to make a really conscious effort not to just have all the fun with the secondary partners and all the grind with the primary partner. Yeah, no, it makes sense. What about psychedelics? Have they played a role in your life? I took acid in college and it was... uh, okay and not very strong. My then best friend and I were like wandering around this huge performance arts center looking at the woodwork and it was kind of like moving and I saw like lizard patterns, very like an Escher print in the floor. And then like 20 years later, 
I was in a gay bar and somebody offered me acid and I took it expecting that sort of slightly visually enhanced experience. And then an hour later, they asked me if I was feeling anything. And I said, no. And they asked me if I wanted another hit. And I took it. (laughs) And the first hit hadn't hit yet. And then the first hit hit. And then the second hit hit. And nobody told me that in the intervening 20 years, the power of acid had increased by some exponential effect. And I saw that place that people don't come back from. So I am afraid of acid. And kind of don't want to ever do it again. After. Yeah. What about mushrooms or ayahuasca? Or things? Oh, oh, also, I was in a gay bar on Halloween in drag judging a costume contest. And then everybody in the bar found out I was tripping my head off on acid and was fucking with me all night. But I couldn't leave because I didn't <laughs> trust that the sidewalk was actually not yeah, yeah. the ocean. And... So you basically violated harm reduction 101 principles in terms of where and how you did that stuff. Yeah. I was very uninformed about acid the second time I did it and not prepared for that. Uh, I've done mushrooms a couple of times. Um, did mushrooms last uh, pretty recently with my husband's boyfriend. We had some mushroom tea together and watched Cats. Uh-huh. Which I think is the only way to watch cats. <laughs> uh-huh, but not the only thing to do while on mushrooms. But for you, and mushrooms and sex has not been a thing. No, no. And, and like a little bit of pot and sex, sometimes a little bit of alcohol and sex. But I'm a, I'm grateful I'm a sober sex kind of person. I'm I, I, not like strictly always, but I, I've seen a lot of gay men self-medicate with alcohol and drugs so that mm-hmm. they can have sex without being paralyzed by shame without feeling guilty or conflicted. And it can create a really powerful association. I think it can carve a deep groove in someone. That's often what I see going on with the people that I have known. And it, that's an important distinction. I'm not gonna say my friends who got into chemsex, because I have very few friends mm-hmm. who got into chemsex because I didn't know anybody who got into chemsex who came back from it hmm. in one piece. Some didn't come back from it at all. Some died. But nobody emerged from a couple of years in chemsex whole enough to have a friendship with. I think it's very deeply damaging. There, there are some things I don't think harm reduction applies to. Mm-hmm. Like you, harm reduction doesn't apply to Russian roulette with five bullets in the gun. And that's chemsex. Hmm. Well, I, I mean, you're more of an expert on these angles than I am, but I, ha- I do know people who would say, you know, that anything can potentially have a harm reduction approach to it. And that there's understanding that there are ways to use some of these substances which can enhance sexual intensity, et cetera, um, and to dabble in these things without going whole bore into them. And there's sometimes a bias in what we hear about stories because the people who screw up on drugs are the ones we always hear about, whereas the people who use them with some responsibility and control are the ones that keep it quiet, don't talk about it. It's so stigmatized in the eyes of everybody else. They don't want to be disapproved of, even though they're used to doing it in a, you know, blah, 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 blah. It's funny you should throw that at me because I've always said that about (laughs) three ways in open relationships, particularly for straight people. Mm -hmm. Straight people would always say, like, three ways always mean the relationship collapses. It's always the end. And open relationships always fail. And no, it's those are the ones you heard about. If your parents had a three-way or your dad cheated and your parents got divorced, you heard about it. If they didn't get divorced, you didn't hear about it. Mm-hmm. So you knew lots of couples, straight couples, who were successfully open or successfully sexually adventurous without the relationship falling apart. You just didn't know you knew them. Exactly. Maybe it's the same thing for me and people who can have one weekend a year where they do a bunch of math. And I, and I draw a distinction between ketamine, math, and uh, what's the other one? 
Uh, GHB? GHB. Yeah, yeah. Although, you know, there's an argument for low-dose amphetamine. That's also, it's different between chemsex oftentimes involves very high-dose stuff. And, you know, a lot of times with drugs, it's all about the dose. Yeah, no. You're not going there. Okay, I, you know, I don't want to push in a, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to push drugs on you or tell you to give it a try. Um, but I, I did meth once. Well, I'm talking also not about methamphetamine in the, you know, heavy form. You know, the way, the way, same which, ways in which, um, you know, millions of young adolescent boys are prescribed, you know, Ritalin, which is basically an amphetamine type drug. Mm -hmm. And if you were to snort or inject that, it would be like methamphetamine. And conversely, if you were to take methamphetamine in a small pill form, it would be more like the Ritalin that kids are taking. And there may well be an argument that, um, you know, taken in a very low dose, perhaps combined with cannabis, might actually be a positive thing. Only one of your teeth will fall out. Well, speaking from personal experience, no teeth fell out and it's got its benefits, <laughs> you know. Um, I actually did do meth one time and this is like, I think this was literally a plot line on Girls on HBO. Uh -huh. I had done a little bit of cocaine in college. I had just moved to Seattle. I was 25 or 24 years old and I was offered a white powdery substance to snort by somebody that I was having a three-way with and I did it. And then he told me it was meth. Because mm -hmm. I was like, wow, that is some shitty tasting cocaine. Uh-huh. Because I had done a bunch of coke in college. Well, a bunch, relative. For me, a bunch. I'd done it like probably a dozen times. Uh, and I was not happy about it. And I was up for two days. And I felt like shit. Yeah. And I didn't do that much. Uh-huh. You know, that's a data point. That's not a trend. And that's an anecdote, not data. But... It just confirmed for me that meth wasn't for me. And I, and I had a deep and a better understanding about the guys I'd seen destroyed by it because I couldn't imagine putting that in my body on a regular basis. No, right. But it, it actually, the truth is, Dan, it really does come down to the dose. And the, both the way you consume it and consuming it orally as opposed to snorting or injecting it and the dose level being substantially different. And that's true with really all drugs in a way. I, I was just going to say, like one cocktail versus 30. Exactly. There's a difference. Exactly. Alcohol poisoning can kill you. But, like, you brought it up in the context of these chemsex parties. No, that's true. That's fair, yeah. I don't think there's a lot of moderation at chemsex parties. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, well, let's shift over. So, for me, when I think about sex and drugs, the psychedelics actually do have their upsides. I mean, there was Timothy Leary, who used to write about, you know, being with women who are having hundreds of orgasms. And, and there's a whole sort of, it's, it's not just him. There's a whole kind of world in which, and in, even in my own personal experience, there's been ways in which, not in the thick of the experience, but maybe at the very beginning or the end, where it does have its positive sides. But the real one, I think, is marijuana. Yeah. I mean, ma marijuana, in the same way it enhances music, taste, other things, can enhance, um, you know, sexual. And I think as much as it does for men, probably even more so for women, generally speaking. I think so, too. And that's come up on my show a lot. And I've recommended it to women in place of the couple glasses of Chardonnay that a lot of female sex advice columnists or writers have recommended to women. And I've gotten tons of, you know, anecdotes, not data, feedback from my listeners who have experimented with pot. They found it disinhibiting. And, you know, I don't want to make, when you start making generalizations about mm -hmm. men and women, you're making generalizations about 3.5 billion people, right. and 4 billion people, and 4 billion other <laughs> right. people. There'll be hundreds of millions of exceptions. Women have more shame and inhibition heaped up on them. And it's so constant 
that it can be a lot harder for a woman to know whether what she's doing is what she wants to be doing. The example I always cite is that Fifty Shades of Grey phenomenon. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a bunch of 16-year-old girls buying that book and suddenly getting into S&M or realizing that power play turned them on. It was a bunch of middle-aged housewives mm -hmm. who were suddenly getting into that book and realizing because they finally had permission. Mm -hmm. to fantasize about that from an external force, which was the bestseller list. Pot can be that permission for some women to really tap into what turns them on. And it does seem to have, uh, when applied topically, an effect uh, in the genitals for, for some women. There are like some THC lubes out there that I've gotten a lot of positive feedback on. I hate to like sound like a wellness industry crank or hack, but the studies aren't done uh, until there's some anecdotal screaming and yelling about the DIY effects that people are creating. Right, because there's actually, there's very little evidence on topicals and like CBD, THC, things like that. Yeah, maybe it's just the feeling of being naughty that you're like applying this like previously forbidden illegal substance <laughs> right. to your genitalia in a form of a lube. And just the act of it is exciting enough that it's a placebo. I was about to say, it calls for a placebo test right here. But I think there's another variable too, which is related to what you're saying, which is I think that in a way marijuana can help quiet the chatter in the brain that can stand between um, a woman and attaining or achieving a better orgasm, right? It's that kind of, in the same way that you can focus more intensely on music or on touch or things like that, it enables, I think both for men and women, but maybe even more so for women to just quiet that stuff so that you're fully focused in the moment on the experience. In uh, Macbeth, talking about alcohol, a character says, you know, booze basically inspires the desire and impedes the performance. I'm paraphrasing perhaps <laughs> badly. Uh -huh. Uh, so we know that at least in men, we've like acknowledged for hundreds of years that alcohol can have a deflating effect. Well, the clitoris is an erectile tissue too, mm -hmm. uh, with two erectile chambers and a glands, just like a penis. And it stands to reason that alcohol that can like make it hard for a guy to get it up can make it hard for a woman to, to become fully aroused. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas pot doesn't interfere with that ability for most men. So it stands to reason, you know, women basically have everything that men have, just the package was assembled in a very different way. Uh, a penis is a giant clit, actually, in some sex <laughs> differentiation. Although with fewer nerve endings, unfortunately. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, that's why you have the prostate and other compensations. Let's take a break here and go to an ad. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon, and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes, packed with original stories and sleep meditations, Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but 
As they progress, they gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Callie, what do you say? It was. And that time when we did the science experiments and Billy made raisins dance. That is so cool, Billy. He did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me! <laughs> Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to catch you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on StoryButton, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. It is 2024, and we're going to get through this together, folks. My campaign promise to all of you here on Next Question is going to be a good time the whole time, we hope. I have some big news to share with you on our season premiere featuring Kris Jenner, who's got some words of wisdom for me on being a good grandmother, or in her case, a good lovey. You know, you start thinking of what you want your grandmother name to be. Like, are they going to call me grandma like I called my grandmother? So I got to choose my name, which is now lovey. I'll also be joined by Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, to name a few. So come on in and take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. I loved it. Your energy and joy. I'm squeezing every minute I can for you out of this season of Next Question. Last question, I promise. You have to go. I have to go. <laughs> but it's been so fun. And I can't wait for you to hear it. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'll tell you a funny story. You know, it must have been early 2000s. And, you know, as part of our, my organization's efforts to kind of change public opinion around marijuana and marijuana legalization. And one of the things we saw was a significant gender gap. The numbers were like 45% of men and 35% of women favored legalizing marijuana. And so was trying to figure out what to do about that. And so I began to bounce the idea about the benefits of marijuana use among older people, especially women. Right. And I bounced this off some of my board members and other friends and all the women I were talking to or most of them were saying, Ethan, great idea. Fantastic. And it was all about, you know, we knew that the public would, would whereas they would get freaked out about marijuana kids. You talk about drugs and older people and people are a lot more tolerant. Right. The notion that, hey, Viagra worked for my husband, but marijuana is the real magic for me by people is focused on people in long term relationships. You know, it seems like a whole way to appreciate these kind of health and wellness, sexual benefits of these things. 
And so I was getting all excited about doing this campaign. And then I ran into a couple of problems. Whereas the older people I talk to oftentimes love the idea, my younger staff, my communication staff, they were totally opposed. And the reason was, I think, because the thought about sex and older people hit the yuck factor and they just didn't want to run with it. And I just basically had to let go of the thing. They didn't want to think about their parents fucking. Exactly. Exactly. Who wants to go there? So I think that stuff has really evolved. I mean, now that you see that as marijuana is becoming increasingly legalized, there's very little increase in adolescent use, but there's a tripling or quadrupling of use among elderly people. And I think some fair bit of it has to do with long-term married couples invigorating and keeping alive their relationship. I've seen that too. And I think that's really positive. And pot, as you know, from your years of advocacy is so much less harmful than alcohol. Pot doesn't make you aggressive or impair your judgment Mm -hmm. in the same way that alcohol does, or in any way comparable to what alcohol does to people. And that's a terrible combo, impaired judgment and aggression. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember when I was a little kid, my dad, who was a Chicago cop, would talk about having to arrest the hippies who were stoned (laughs) for pot. And the attitude among the police, him and all of his partners, even though they'd cracked heads at the 68 Democratic Convention in Grant Park, was that it wasn't the potheads that were problems, that they'd rather arrest potheads because they were easier to arrest because they weren't aggro. They -hmm. weren't out of control crazy, even though the pot propaganda, particularly at that time in the late 60s, early 70s, was all that pot made people crazy. Reagan pot makes you impotent. And the opposite was true. It's alcohol that makes you a fucking piece of shit. That's right. Monster. In big doses. In big doses. But too much alcohol, you want to get in a fight. Too much pot, you want to get in a 7-Eleven candy aisle. And give me the stoner over the boozer any day. You know, let's shift gears. I mean, in my advocacy around uh, drug policy reform, you know, I, there were tremendous analogies um, to the fights around gay rights. And I oftentimes, especially on the, the, the marijuana piece of drug policy reform, that the gay rights movement really felt like something of an elder sibling, somebody who was paving the way. And, and for all sorts of reasons, all these powerful analogies between that struggle, um, ranging from the stigmatization on the one hand to elements of personal autonomy on the others. And I wonder how much that's been part of you're thinking around uh, these issues. I certainly think there's a parallel there. And, and remember, the, the gay rights movement was the offspring of the women's rights movement, which was the offspring of the civil rights movement. Each inspired mm-hmm. the other. And I, I do remember years ago when normal uh, adopted coming out as a metaphor, mm-hmm. what they were importuning people who smoked pot recreationally to start doing because the public image of the pothead and the reality of the pot user we're in such conflict and so many more people used pot responsibly um, and recreationally than anybody who made policy was aware or most voters were aware. And so the pot community borrowed the coming out metaphor. Some gay people were offended. Some gay people lived to be offended. I'm not one of those gay people. I was not offended at all. Lots of different people have borrowed the coming out metaphor. I'm offended Mm -hmm. when the ex-gays borrow the coming out metaphor (laughs) and then come out as ex-gay and argue that no one should be gay and that gay people shouldn't have rights because they're not sucking dicks anymore. Fuck those guys. Mm -hmm. That's an abuse of the coming out metaphor. But I think the pot folks adopting it was uh, an affirmation of of our, of the, you know, the secret weapon of like the gays. You know, we were randomly distributed throughout the population and embedded in every family. It's not a perfect 
analogy, but if race worked the same way, we would live in a very different world. If you found out you're going to be, your kid was black when your kid turned 15 uh, or 13, George Zimmerman would be on death row. Yeah. Well, let, let me ask you, uh, let me push you a bit because I've seen some things where maybe we can find some room to disagree on something here, which is that I also think there's an element of identity, right? So for me in trying to build a drug policy reform movement, it was, I saw myself in following the footsteps and standing on the shoulders of civil rights and women's rights and gay rights and other fights against minority groups that were discriminated against. And, and it raised questions about to what extent one's use of illicit drugs created a sense of identity in a way. And I, there was even a phrase I would sometimes use that I, did, it, I don't like the sound of it, so I never used it a lot, but it was druggism, just mm -hmm. not unlike racism, right? That people have negative, they stigmatize, they demonize, they have negative views of people who use, of people because of the drugs they use, right? Um, and often, and, 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 that that's, and that in some respects, that prejudice almost became the one acceptable prejudice, not just among conservatives, but even among liberals, where we would accept a criminalization of people based upon the substance they were putting in their body when we were when, when liberals were abandoning this on, on all other fronts. Are you with me on this? I, I'm with you. This is not an area of disagreement necessarily. Uh, and, and drugism, of course, that kind of discriminatory attitude grew out of the drug war and 100 years of propaganda stigmatizing mm -hmm. drug use and people who use drugs, even as the whole country swilled alcohol and smoked cigarettes. I think cigarette is the worst and most destructive drug. Mm -hmm. You know, I, that, that that's always for me a, a big hang up. Like the point of smoking a joint isn't to smoke. It's to stop smoking the joint and get onto the Fritos. Right. But I saw you say someplace like, you know, listen, the difference here, though, is that if you're gay or lesbian or whatever, uh, you know, even if you stop fucking, you're still gay or lesbian. It is it is a core identity. Whereas if you're a drug user and you stop using, you're no longer a drug user. I mean, put aside the whole 12 step, always an addict thing and put that on the side. But I don't think I don't think drug user is a, analogous to a sexual orientation. Is it? Well, let, let me press you on this, right? Because And it also raises the issue of how much stigmatization plays a role, right? So for me, if I think about in my own evolution from being a kid who was totally you know, stupid on issues about, about homosexuality and what have you. And then my evolution was, well, what this fight is basically about is getting to the point where one's sexuality is, you know, no different thing about that than we think about left-handedness versus right-handedness. I mean, mm -hmm. roughly the same percent of the population are probably gay or left-handed. But we don't even think about left-handedness. There's no negative thing attached to it at all. Anymore. Anymore, exactly. And the question is, is I, you know, now in terms of as as being gay or lesbian or even other parts of LGBTQ become more normalized, hopefully, does that sense of identity, connection to that identity, become increasingly diminished? Well, some people argue are arguing that it already has. Um, the world is a some parts of the world are a less hostile place. We've seen other parts of the world become more hostile to queer people in reaction to the parts of the world where it, there is less hostility. Um, you have countries like Russia trying to assert its moral superiority over the decadent West by killing gay people and queer people and trans people and persecuting them in ways that they weren't persecuting them 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. So individual results may vary. Check your geolocation before you All make right. statements about like how you know much better everything is for queers. The difference I think though is the overwhelming majority of people are straight. 
like 97%, 95%. And all queer people are going to face the heterosexual and cisgender assumption. And it's not an irrational assumption. When something's correct 97% of the time, that's an assumption that human beings are going to make. Even gay human beings are going to make those kinds of assumptions when they're correct 97% of the time. So all gay people, all queer people going forward are still going to have to come out, are still going to have to push away the assumption that was made about their sexual orientation or their gender identity and assert themselves as gay, lesbian, bi, or trans in a way that a straight person doesn't have to assert themselves as straight because the mm-hmm. default identity, the, the, the presumed identity assumption fit and, and wasn't, you know, a hair shirt like it was for us. Yeah. Um, and, and when it comes to drug use, don't we all use drugs? When I go to the pot shop that is literally three blocks away from my house in the city where I used to smoke a little weed on my back porch and worry about a neighbor calling the cops and the cops coming, which was an irrational worry. I'm a white guy in a white neighborhood predominantly, and the cops are not going to come arrest me on my porch, but it still played in the back of my mind like because I have worst case scenario disorder. And now I walk to the pot shop. I don't see 21-year-olds in there. I see people my age in there. You know, I mean, your, your state, Washington State, was the first state to legalize marijuana. Now a third of the states or a little more have done so. But, you know, we're basically talking about two countries out of 200. And we're talking about the Russias and others of the world, which demonize not just gays and lesbians, but also demonize users of other drugs. And there are ways in which alcohol is to other drugs the way being straight is to other types of sexuality or sexual identity. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I think that's true. And the other thing I remember, because you know, there was this period in the early 2000s when all of a sudden, basically the antiretroviral drugs had come along and the people who had been leaders in the uh, HIV AIDS struggle, they were all looking for something new. And many of them landed up working for me on drug policy reform. They, it was another social justice issue. It was where there were these ongoing issues. And so I would push this analogy between gay rights and drug policy reform, between issues of personal autonomy on these things, identity. And I know it made some of my gay colleagues uncomfortable, right? That, that this was something that somehow identity as a drug consumer was not of the same level. And then I would kind of point out, I'd say, you know, think about it this way. If you're gay, to get criminalized, you more or less have to be caught in the act, right? Legally speaking, 20 years ago. With drugs, you didn't need to be caught in the act of consuming. You just needed to be caught in possession. With drugs, you could be drug tested for what you did two days ago, four days ago, six days ago, but you could not be gay tested in the workplace, right? Yeah. You know, we keep getting to, my brother and I call it when we're in violent agreement instead of violent disagreement. We keep landing at a place of violent agreement. Gay people who can't see the parallel, you know, it's not, it's never exact, But the parallel between being, you know, we used to get thrown in jail for what we put in our mouths, that there are people in jail for what, for a substance they wanted to consume for you, you know, for some guy, poor motherfucker arrested in a park in LA 30 years ago, it was semen. And if somebody's getting arrested and thrown in jail right now because they want to put a joint between their lips, there's a parallel. I don't think it's around identity. I think it's around behavior, desire, you know, the desired effect, right? But also the ecstasy, maybe like... The ecstasy of sucking some dude off in the park. The ecstasy mm-hmm. of ecstasy. Like that human desire for that kind of transcendence. And sexuality and sexual acts are one way to transcend death, transcend the moment. Drugs are another way. You know, it reminds me of gay people who can't see that anti-choice laws that criminalize women's control of their own reproductive systems are in the same basket with laws that criminalized our expression 
of sexual desire. You're telling people what they can and can't do with their body. It's the state taking control of your body. Uh, and yeah. I, you know, okay. and uh, so, some years ago, uh, one of our le- first allies in Congress was Barney Frank, right? The first openly gay member of Congress. And we're talking about marijuana reform. We're talking a little bit about gay rights. And as I'm leaving, I say, you know, Barney, I mean, gay rights, uh, drug reform. I mean, it really boils down to the same principle that nobody deserves to be punished what they put in their body, whether it's a cock or a joint. <laughs> And how did he react? He smiled. He got it, you know, because, I mean, he, you know, he's a smart guy and it was it was obvious. You can always find the the tiny percentage of gay land that's offended by anything. You yeah. Know, there's been some writing comparing the COVID-19 pandemic to the HIV AIDS pandemic. And there are eerie parallels. I lived through the HIV AIDS pandemic. Uh, I came out or the crisis, you know, it's still mm-hmm. with us. A million people died of AIDS last year. I came out in 1980. And then AIDS came out in 1981. And, you know, people talking about, you know, antibodies and whether they're negative or positive and uh, risk and harm reduction and how to have sex in a pandemic. Like all of these things have been terribly triggering for me, in a, mm-hmm. not in a trauma sense, just like throwing me back into moments of, well, I guess in a trauma sense, fear and panic around HIV. And yet some gay people... And I've noticed that when I like see gay people being very angry about these comparisons, I'll go and look at their social media profiles and they're 30. Mm-hmm. And then you see gay guys like me, you see Andrew Sullivan, who's you mm-hmm. know, very controversial, has written some very moving things about his experiences as an HIV positive man in the pandemic then compared to the pandemic now and drawing those parallels. And he's also written some very good stuff about drugs, actually, as well. Yeah. You see, older gay men and, and gay people who lived through it get it. And the gay people are taking offense that anyone would compare, you know, the, the whole government kicked into action about this pandemic in a way they didn't about HIV. Yeah, that's absolutely true. The response was very different. A lot of these echoes are there, though, and they're very evocative for those of us who lived through the, the AIDS crisis. You know, it's funny. I, I feel a little bit like we're talking like two, you know, the Yiddish expression is alta cockers, you know, old farts, you know. <laughs> but I mean, I, I mean, the, the, the sense is there, there is this thing. It, it, it's like I look at my I would look at my younger staff and they were in first grade when marijuana was getting legalized or maybe not even born when marijuana was getting legalized for medical purposes. And they were in middle school or something when marijuana was getting legalized in Washington, Colorado. And they have no idea of the struggles that went on before that. Right. And, and the same thing on harm reduction type stuff. And obviously you must feel the same thing about gay rights where younger, you know, LGBT people have no idea what the stigmatization, demonization was like before. And it's the same way in which older civil rights leaders sometimes go, oh, young people don't get what it was like before or, or what have you. You know what I've said to, to some of my younger gay friends, you know, at the pride parade, the P flag will come down the street, parents and friends of lesbians and gays. Uh, I don't think it stands for that anymore because it's not just lesbians and gays anymore. And I'll point out to them that P flag comes down the street now and nobody cries. When mm-hmm. PFLAG came down the street when I was 20 and at, or 18 and at my first pride parade, people bawled because it was the exception to have parents that loved you. It was the exception to have parents that hadn't rejected you. And to see parents marching with their gay kids, to see parents who loved their gay kids was just gutting because for most people in the crowd, they didn't have that. And I point that out to young, my young gay friends, like when I've been to pride parades with them, you're not crying. Please be aware of what that means. 
because I can't even talk about PFLAG. I'm crying right now. I can't even talk about PFLAG yeah. without getting weepy because, you know, when I came out to my mom who I loved and who loved me, I had a friend waiting on my porch because there was no cell phones. There was no texting people in an emergency. I had a friend waiting on my porch whose apartment I could go live in with him on his couch if mm -hmm. I got thrown out that night. Mm -hmm. And now people come out to their parents and it's just, it, it's exceptional when the parents reject them. It's yeah. shocking. Like news stories get written about that. No, in fact, but, but I isn't think that it, great it, that they take it for granted because now they're fighting to like, it, it means we won. It means that there, we've been, this, our generation has been victorious. It, it means we won. And when you win movements, what do they do? They move on to what hasn't been won yet. That's what they're supposed to do. Exactly. You know, during the marriage equality fight that I was very involved in, you know, people would say, oh, the gay rights movement was supposed to be about liberation and sexual freedom and not marriage. And I would say to them, okay, well, we have secured the right to suck a million dicks and wear an appalling <laughs> outfit to the bride parade without getting arrested. Yeah, yeah. Job done. But the movement has moved on to what we don't have yet, which is marriage. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, it's, it's, I mean, I look at with the marijuana legalization victories. I mean, you know, until almost last year, there's still 700,000 people in America being arrested for marijuana, mostly possession and disproportionately young men of color and all that. Now that yes. we're legalizing, the stories that bring me to the same tears that you had when that flag was waving was when I hear about people who are being suddenly let out of jail or dismissed from court or having their records expunged because now they're free. And my own personal experience of that, literally, I mean, we're having this conversation now in early May. Literally just a few days ago, I went with an old buddy, right? And we were taking a walk in Central Park and New York has just changed the law so that you can smoke a joint openly anywhere you can smoke a cigarette. First day in the country to do that, right? Now you're not allowed to smoke a cigarette in Central Park, which means you can't smoke a joint. So we walked outside Central Park. We're sitting on a bench on Fifth Avenue, right? And I said, let's light up. And there's a cop sitting across the street in his car. And my friend goes, Ethan, there's a cop there. We can't. I said, Howard, this is the meaning of freedom. We can yes. light up this joint with a police officer sitting in the car across the street and we are totally legal. And that feeling that, you know, what we were fundamentally fighting for was freedom, right, is something mm -hmm. that um, I hope people just keep hanging on to that. There was a citizen initiative in Seattle to make marijuana crimes the lowest law enforcement priority. So if the police were arresting more people for pot than for jaywalking, the police were breaking the law and it got onto the ballot and every city council member, the mayor, the governor, it was a Democrat, I think at the time, yeah. the entire political establishment said, vote no. It passed by 65%. It was really the trial balloon for decriminalization in Washington state. No, that, that's really we true. First. Well, I, you remember who it was? It, it was a young guy named Dominic Holden, right? Who was mm -hmm. your colleague at the newspaper, The Stranger, and my ally in the drug mm -hmm. policy reform movement. And he pioneered this idea. We were already moving forward on medical marijuana that was changing one element of it. The racial justice piece had not yet really emerged. And here out of Seattle comes this beautiful measure, basically saying to the cops, we can't force you, but we're telling you this should now be the lowest priority of enforcement. It was a big breakthrough. And then when it was on the ballot statewide to decriminalize, to, to legalize, to legalize, regulate, open pot shops, almost every, I think, political elected official in blue Washington said vote no. And overwhelmingly, people voted yes. And, and I, like, I was just thinking about that when I-62 passed and came into effect, because, you know, that I've mentioned earlier, like having a joint mm -hmm. in my backyard, 
and worried. Like, what if a neighbor smells this and calls the cops and they're bored and they want to like make it seem like marijuana enforcement isn't just something that they do to black kids. And so they make a point of driving into my neighborhood, arresting me. And I would have those anxieties. And it was the, the feeling of like smoking pot in public after that passed and just feeling free was tremendous. I got to say though, that I think one of the missing, and I've argued this, I've written things about this. I get so angry at elected officials when they say it's no longer a crime. It's not, not a crime to possess pot now. Therefore, uh, these people with records for possession, these records should be cleared. It's not a crime to sell it anymore either. And yet there are people in jail for selling it still, Mm -hmm. uh, who sold it when it was a crime, just like there are people in jail for possessing it when it was a crime. And we need to, the movement, and I, you know, you hear more about this now and I think they're doing this in New York, needs to argue for expunging the records of people who had dealing convictions. I mean, Dan, you know, the fact of the matter is when that initiative, I mean, my organization was not involved in drafting the initiative in Washington state that year, but the fact of the matter is the first generation typically are, the first generation of these new laws are typically more restrictive because public opinion is not advanced as far. See, we could not put those expungement provisions because that might've been a a no-go for people who otherwise vote for it. There were provisions about continuing to allow drug testing, which we're now able to really restrict in the later laws. There were issues about where the tax revenue went. So I think it's it's the issue where the old, older generation of these laws are the pioneering ones, but they only can go so far because the public's only gone so far. Now, when two-thirds of the public um, is in favor, um, you can push it a lot further. So listen, last issue I want to talk to you about. So, I mean, you, you and your husband have a kid who's what, now in his early 20s? Yeah. And you've had to talk not just about sex, but about drugs with him growing up. So how did that conversation evolve, um, uh, if I can ask? Uh, you know, this is something I can't talk about. My son doesn't like me to talk about him. Yeah. Ten years ago, he told us he was off the record. And I, I, I have to respect that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My daughter's saying the same thing about a bunch of things. But she does understand the basic ideas that that essentially harm reduction vis-a-vis drug education really models on sex education, right? It's accepting the fact that people are going to do something, engage in sex, engage in drug use, and that one way or another, you have to keep them safe. And the other point I'd make is that, you know, young people typically lose their quote-unquote drug virginity before they use their sexual virginity, right? They get drunk, they get high, they do this, they use their friend's real in, oftentimes before they ever get laid, you know? And so that we better have that same sort of pragmatic advice going forward. We certainly had conversations with him. They didn't always uh, have the impact that we hoped that they would have. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of addiction in my biological family and my, you know, by grandparents, our son is adopted. There's a lot of addiction issues in his biological family um, that he's had to be careful about. And mm-hmm. I've had to be careful about because of the hereditary component for addiction. Yeah. Um, the propensity for addiction. And so those weren't always easy conversations. Yeah. I mean, have you had, I mean, the thing we also didn't talk about is the whole issue of drug addiction and sex addiction. And uh, I mean, you obviously have had to give a lot of advice on your columns about sex addiction. And yeah, I don't. I don't, I don't think sex addiction is real. I, I uh-huh. think there's compulsive uh, sexuality, a sort of like overlap OCD behavior and sexuality. There's also self-destructiveness around sexuality that can attach to it very easily because we live in a sex-negative, kink-shaming, homophobic culture, and some people are so packed with self-loathing about their desires that they will then punish themselves with those desires, how they act on those desires. They believe that they deserve destruction for, you know, who they are sexually. 
and they will throw themselves on those rocks, which is possible, particularly if you're gay. You know, you can fuck yourself to death if you're gay. Mm -hmm. um, you know, everything that the, the excesses of gay male culture that sometimes straight people assume is something we all do. That, that's not about being gay. That's about being a man. If there was a, a, you know, a bathhouse in every city in the country where women showed up wanting to have anonymous sexual intercourse with heterosexual men that they would never see again, straight mm -hmm. men would go there in droves. A bathhouse is a whorehouse staffed by volunteers, as I've frequently <laughs> famously said. And there's no parallel in, in, in gay land or in straight land, pardon uh -huh. me. And we can't, we can't discount the zap that can be placed on people's heads about who they are sexually. And not just gay people. Like there's a lot of straight people who struggle with shame as well, particularly people from religious backgrounds. But almost everyone who is peddling the sex addiction model, sex addiction therapy, it's a way of secularizing a religious argument about sex and sexuality. And most of the people pushing it are religious. And most of the organizations pushing it are religious. And they want people to feel conflict about their desires. And, 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 you know, you see guys who are like looking at a little porn and the only way that they can get out of trouble with the wife and the congregation is to claim that they're addicted to porn, the evils of porn. And now we have a movement to ban porn and declare porn a public health menace because it's so addictive and destructive. And it's just not. There are some people who will spend 12 hours in front of a computer masturbating until they're bloody. That person has a problem. Porn is what they're punishing themselves with, but porn's a neutral actor because millions of other people at the same time can like enjoy a little porn and then push away from the fucking computer. The problem isn't the porn. Well, you know, I like also where you started on this by saying that you essentially reject the term sex addiction. And, you know, there's a whole uh, way of thinking about drugs, which also rejects the term drug addiction. I mean, first of all, because so many people use it to mean so many different things. But beyond that, that what we're talking about, whether it's sex or whether we're talking about drugs or all host of things, is the quality and nature of that relationship, the difference between healthy relationships and unhealthy relationships. The difference between use and abuse. Mm -hmm. And we have to be very clear about that. There's a difference between use and abuse. And when it comes to the sex addiction model, like very often what people mean by sex addiction is someone is having more sex than I think that they should have or should want to have or a different kind of sex than I think anybody should want to have. Mm -hmm. And it's about a moral judgment and shame and not about harm necessarily. It's possible mm -hmm. to have tons of gay sex. It's possible to have multiple partners. It's possible to you know, be straight and swingers or, you know, a serial monogamist or whatever and be healthy. It's not one woman, one man, marriage, heterosexual missionary in the dark for life to be healthy. Although anybody that deviates in the slightest way from that standard is in danger of being labeled a sex addict. Mm -hmm. Well, and there's also an analogy there to drug use, which is that one can use some drugs every single day, but if it's not causing a problem in your life, it's not really an addiction. One can use a multiplicity of different drugs for long periods of time for different reasons. And once again, it's not an addiction unless it's really causing problems. But can you acknowledge that there's a potential health consequence there to the to, to, to that kind of habitual, regular use. I can acknowledge, of I have written very controversially for like the gays, that it is possible to suck too much dick. That the more men that you're having sex with, the more risk you're running, not just for STIs, but for like Jeffrey Dahmer's and John Wayne Gacy's and Andrew Cunanan's. Like the more people that you have sex with who don't care about you, they just care about the sex, the likely you are to wind up in bed with someone who is going to harm you. Right. Not Maybe not murder and eat you, but... 
And the same thing is true in that relationship with a drug. I mean, nicotine itself, you can be taking it every day all your life in a relatively safe way. It's not really going to harm you. You're smoking a pack of cigarettes every day. There's a very good chance it's going to kill you, right? Alcohol, you can have the occasional drink, and there might be slight risks associated with that, especially with uh, older women and such. But by and large, if you're drinking a pint a day or a quart a day, that could destroy your liver and kill you. With cocaine, you can play with it, but in the wrong amounts, it can kill you. With opioids, it can become a lifelong medication for some people and actually enhance the quality of your life, especially if you're using it in a controlled, responsible way. But if you're injecting shit of unknown potency and purity, you know, that's going to be a problem. Um, Psychedelics, you know, where the benefits so much exceed the downsides for so many people, but you do it in a stupid context, you know, to go back to where you start off at your (laughs) your LSD trip, you know, not such a good idea. You could land up in trouble there. So it's just, I mean, the the aggravating thing is there's no clear line that we can't draw as like a, a definite line. There are guys out there who can like drink or use a little bit of drugs or drink more or use more drugs than someone else can drink or use Mm -hmm. drugs and and still be healthy and functional. And they're fine. But there's a point at which we all recognize like 12 drinks in a night, every night, do you have a problem? Six, maybe you have a problem. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Two, you don't have a problem. And it's our inability to draw a clear line because individual results may vary that make these conversations so not unproductive or unsatisfying, just we can never resolve them. We can never come up with the recommended daily dose of anything. You kept breaking up dosage because an individual's body, their tolerance levels, what works for them. But, but, you know, at a certain point, we can, you know, we, we reckon, we can't see where the line is, but we can see when someone's gone so far past it that it's definitely a problem. Yeah. When it comes to sex, when it comes to food, when it comes to drugs, when it comes to Twitter, when it comes to almost everything. We can see when it's a problem, but we can't see quite the point it tips over into the problem. No, that's true. I mean, now we see as the COVID restrictions are lifting, uh, do you think we're going to have this explosion of reckless uh, sex and drug use coming up ahead in the next year or two? Well, I was talking about Nicholas Christaka's book last week uh, where he's predicting that there will be... uh, an explosion of hedonism. I, I labeled it the whoring 20s. We'll see. Uh-huh. Uh, we're also in the midst, other social scientists have documented a kind of a sex recession uh, where more and more people are making their sexual debuts as they're called. We are all debutantes. It's nice to think about. <laughs> Later in life, uh, there's a lot of people who have had no sex partner in the last year uh, on average, and that's the pre-COVID years, uh, than ever before. And so we'll see. I know people are desperate to get out there and drink strangers' spit but <laughs> we'll see where the intersection of this sex recession and this, this, this pent up demand comes. <laughs> On that note, I just want to thank you. I love talking with you, man. This was, this was so much fun. And uh, hopefully we meet in person one of these days. You're welcome. And I'm glad I didn't have too many more quotes from my old columns thrown at me. I'm sure you have more. I did have a few more, but I said, I'll leave them there, you know. <laughs> Psychoactive is a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. It's hosted by me, Ethan Adelman. It's produced by Katja Kumkova and Ben Kiebrick. The executive producers are Dylan Golden, Ari Handel, Elizabeth Gieses, and Darren Aronofsky for Protozoa Pictures, Alex Williams and Matt Frederick for iHeartRadio, and me, Ethan Adelman. Our music is by Ari Belusian. And a special thanks to Abhivit Bar-Yosef, Bianca Grimshaw, and Robert Beatty. If you'd like to share your own stories, comments, or ideas, 
please leave us a message at 833-779-2460. That's 1-833-PSYCHO-0. You can also email us at psychoactive at protozoa.com or find me on Twitter at Ethan Nadelman. And if you couldn't keep track of all this, find the information in the show notes. Tune in next time for my conversation with Melissa Moore, my former colleague at Drug Policy Alliance who led the successful effort to legalize marijuana in New York State. All the evidence showed that if you were to randomly stop 100 black kids, 100 brown kids, 100 white kids in almost any city in America, virtually the same percent of them would have marijuana in their pocket. But the black kids were two to 10 times more likely to get busted than the white kids. That's right. And, you know, the data that we have from the Department of Health in New York City in particular shows that young white people in New York City actually use cannabis at significantly higher rates than black and Latinx young people in the city. And yet what we see is the enforcement is pretty much the exact inverse of that. Subscribe to Psychoactive Now so you don't miss it. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. The Koala Moon podcast has revolutionised over 20 million bedtimes, with parents like you calling it life-changing and the perfect nighttime routine. With original kids' bedtime stories and cosy sleep meditations, every episode has been specially designed to make bedtimes a dream. Listen to Koala Moon on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.